So, good morning again. My name, if you haven't already picked up, is Ian, Ian Sharp, and I've been part of this church family now for just over a year. Uh, I'd like to thank Mary for giving me the opportunity to preach to you this morning. She has given me the title, The End, for this talk, which is a bit unusual to be saying uh, the end at the beginning of a talk, but that's not only because it's the last talk in this series in, in Matthew, uh, but it's also a passage that deals with what's known as eschatology, in other words, the end times. Although, you may have noticed that most of the other eight talks in this series, which I'm sure you've listened to, have dealt with the kingdom of heaven in some way. So they too were about the end times. It's not, of course, the end of Matthew. The passion and the resurrection narratives are yet to come. Today's reading, and thank you, Carol, for that reading, is about the parable of the ten virgins, also known as bridesmaids, also known as young women, which we had read to us, and the wedding feast to which some of them go to and some of them don't. Many Bible versions use a different word for virgins here. But I'm going to continue to use the word virgin simply because that's what my translation, the 1984 version of the NIV, uses. The other titles are equally valid. Virgins of the, in that day implies unmarried, as women were generally married between the ages of 12 and 16 in those days. They also really would have been young women, by our standards, in fact, girls even. Much of Matthew's Gospel is a series of questions asked by various people and various groups of people and then Jesus, sometimes lengthy, answers to those questions. So we're going to attempt to ask questions about what this passage probably meant to the people of the first century. As a spoiler alert here, the last verse tells us and hope to answer those questions. I'm also going to cover what I don't think this passage means with reasoning as to why I don't think it means those things because there are a great many people, especially in online forums, discussing fairly radical ideas as to what they think this passage might mean. Before we start looking at this passage in detail, I think it, we should establish a few facts about the passage in general that are not contained within the passage itself. I have a few points here. You see, in most cases of scriptural interpretation, it's all down to the various forms of context in which the passage finds itself. So if I could have slide two, please, Bill. So this passage is all about Jesus speaking. If you have what's known as a red-letter Bible, that is where the words of Jesus are printed in red type, and let's be honest, we don't actually use paper Bibles anymore, we all, we all use phones and tablets, you'll find that all of this uh, passage is in red. In fact, it's in red from verse 4 of the previous chapter to the end of this chapter. That's 94 verses in total of nothing but Jesus speaking not even any narrative. 
The Gospel of Matthew has five such passages known as discourses, which are effectively Jesus' sermons. The fact that there are five of them may reflect on the five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah. Jesus is, in effect, preaching a new law from a new mountain. This is the last one of those discourses known as the discourse of the end times. That's fortunate, isn't it? Or the eschatological discourse, which means the same thing. Or also known as the Olivet Discourse, because, if I could have uh, slide number three, please, Bill, the location of this, uh, this speech of Jesus is with Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives. We're told that in verse three of the previous chapter. And when's he doing this? Well, the date is two days before the Passover, just before Jesus' death, which is in verse two of the following chapter. And who's listening? The people to whom Jesus is talking or preaching are his 12 disciples. We're told that in verse three of the previous chapter and verse one of the next chapter. And he's talking to them privately. The subject he's talking, talking to them about is Jesus, his own second coming at the end of the age. Because at the beginning of this discourse in uh, Matthew 24 verse three, the disciples ask him exactly this question. And by means of this discourse, Jesus is answering their question. So although Jesus is talking to them privately, obviously the disciples didn't keep this knowledge of Jesus' discourse to themselves. The author of this gospel is reckoned to be Matthew, who was one of the disciples. Though bear in mind that all of the gospels are internally anonymous. But the early church and the church fathers accepted Matthew's authorship. So if we accept Matthew's authorship, we're reading this account from an eyewitness who heard this discourse firsthand. This story or parable or pericope is unique to Matthew. At least, it is at least uh, um, the story about the wedding and the virgins is unique to, to Matthew. Uh, Mark and Luke allude to its conclusion. So this supports the idea that we're listening to the account from a first-hand witness. And lastly, my last point about the context of this passage is, um, most importantly, it is a parable. So it most likely didn't literally happen. All we can answer is what is likely to have happened had it been a real event. But in many cases, there can never be an accurate answer. A parable can be interpreted a bit like a dream, but there are important differences. If you're not familiar with dream interpretation, Mew Wilkins, when she's here, does a good course. A parable contains metaphors, and this symbolism represents people or things in the interpretation. However, whereas in dreams the symbols and things are things that are pertinent to you personally, in a, in the, in a biblical parable the symbols represent people or things that are pertinent to the original listeners to the parable and the original intended readers of the written material. 
There are a couple of decades gap between these two in this case. A scriptural parable is best interpreted with the use of scripture. Whereas in dream interpretation, not all the detail may be immediately relevant. In the Gospels, and my point of view here differs with some, all of it is relevant. Not only is it the word of God being reported to us by this author, but in this case, Matthew is bringing to us what he reports to be the very words of Jesus. Not only that, but writing was incredibly expensive in those days. Not only was writing material very costly, but the process of writing itself required great skill. And it was also very costly, especially if one had to employ a scribe. Get off slide four, please, Bill. Not only that, but it's Matthew who's telling us this story. My former New Testament lecturer, a gentleman by the name of Jamie Davis, I'm sure Mary may recognize him, described Matthew as, and I quote, a massive nerd. He loves number games and loves details. So I'm going to endeavor to interpret everything in this gospel because I think it's all important and relevant to the story. If only we could work out what it all means. The writer, Matthew, could not afford to write any words that he didn't consider to be important. So, this story is all about the kingdom of God. We're told that in the first verse. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is a major theme in Matthew, being referred to no fewer than 31 times. In my version of the Bible, it starts off, this passage starts off with the word then, and I went on to comment that it might be better rendered as at that time. But I noticed in the version that uh, Carol read to us, it did start with at that time. So fortunately, some people have picked that up. So that means this parable connects in with the previous one, which was all about the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, arriving for a second time at an unexpected time. It couldn't have meant Jesus arriving with them for the first time since he was already present with them in the flesh with his disciples there and then. But one point to consider as we, we consider this passage further, note that the kingdom of heaven is not automatically the same thing as heaven itself. So if I could have slide number five, please, Bill. So this story is that of a Jewish wedding at the time of Jesus. The whole business of a wedding was quite different then to what we practice these days, and even somewhat different to a Jewish wedding of today. We can't be 100% certain of exactly what the practice would have been then, though. That varied over time and culture. Weddings were incredibly important and popular events in those days, even more so than today. Whereas these days, one cannot usually get married on Sundays, high days, and holy days, the reverse was true then. There are stories of rabbis interrupting their lectures, which was never done otherwise, to cheer on a pa passing wedding parties. 
and synagogue services took second place to weddings. On the evening of the wedding, the bridegroom would be at his in-law's house where any formal ceremony might have taken place and he would collect his bride. So what's the meaning here? The bridegroom represents God. Yahweh is described to us as the bridegroom in various parts of scripture. For example, Isaiah 62.5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Jesus has already cast himself as the bridegroom earlier in this gospel. So Matthew 9.15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In this case, Jesus is portraying the bridegroom as himself. So note that in portraying himself in a manner normally associated with Yahweh, God the Father, consider here that Jesus is making one of his many claims to divinity. The delay of the bridegroom. In a real Jewish wedding of that day, this was likely down to not only delays in the proceedings, overrunning of ceremonies, but also a final haggling over the bride price with his new in-laws. One had to purchase a wife from his parents in those days. Thus, we ended up with elderly gentlemen who had the money wed to young wives. What's the meaning here? You do not know the hour or the day of, second, of Jesus' second coming. This is echoing the stars of the previous parable, Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that hour or day. So if I could have slide number six, please. story about Harold Camping, you might remember that name. Back in 2011, there was a gentleman by the name of Harold Camping who was very influential, and largely through an American radio chain that he was president of, in fact he founded it, Family Radio. He falsely predicted the second coming of Christ on the 21st of May 2011. This was widely broadcast around the world, you might remember it, Harold had a website then giving a countdown in days before this event was supposed to have happened. On the 22nd of May 2011, that is the day after this was all supposed to have happened, uh, the website clock was still stuck on zero days. So I emailed Camping to tell him he had a problem. Serious, I did. <laughs> His website should, surely, I said, be reading minus one days on that day. I never got a reply. I'm thinking perhaps it went to his, his, his support team and I'm wondering if they still had an employment contract on that day. Camping was wrong, of course, and he was rightly branded as a false prophet by Christian and non-Christian alike, which included yours truly, which I did before the date concerned. As Matthew 24, 36, amongst other scriptures, tells us, no one knows the day or hour. If Camping and or Family Radio had done a bit of fact-checking, they could have avoided gross ridicule and gross expense for that matter. Apparently Family Radio spent over 100, 100 million US dollars advertising this. But it wasn't the first or the last time Camping had done this. Though, to be fair, however, the following year he confessed that he had sinned in predicting Jesus' second coming shortly before his own death. If I could have slide number seven, please. 
back to the marriage. Once the haggling had been successfully completed, the bridegroom, bride and party ceremonially travel in a procession to the bridegroom's house for the start of the wedding feast. The wedding feast was a very major event. It could last a week or even two. Take the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2 verse 1 as an example. By my reckoning, the quantity of water Jesus turned into wine was between about 540 and 810 litres. So the wedding feast in Cana couldn't have been quick. Or take Jacob's marriage to Leah, which lasted a week in Genesis 29-27. Or again, but you'll have to forgive me, it's in the Apocrypha, Tobias, the hero of the book of Tobit, had a wedding feast that lasted two weeks in Tobit 8.20. Our ten virgins fit into the story right from the start. They're probably waiting in the vicinity of the bride's house, or at least somewhere between the bride's house and the bridegroom's house, in order to be part of the procession and, most importantly, to join in with the wedding feast instead of otherwise the non-existent bride. But before we get any further into what those ten virgins might have been up to, notice someone who's missing from this story. I've hinted at it already. The bride is conspicuously not mentioned throughout the whole of the story. Why could this be? Elsewhere in scripture, we find the people of God being described as the bride. For example, Isaiah 62.5 again, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And Jeremiah 2.2, Jeremiah's proclaiming prophetically to Jerusalem, how as a bride you loved me. God's covenants with his people were like marriage covenants of that, of that day, though these days marriage is more like, a more like a contract which is subtly different to a covenant. But it's some of the virgins who end up accompanying the bridegroom, that is Jesus, to his wedding feast, that is the heavenly feast. So what's the meaning here? So we can be allowed to think that the virgins are taking the place of the bride here. Matthew's complete omission of the bride is probably deliberate. Some early gospel copyists thought the bride had been omitted from the story as well, and some early manuscripts insert and bride after bridegroom in verse 1. But the general consensus of scholarly opinion is that there was no mention of the bride in the original. So the church has frequently interpreted this as meaning that Jesus is accompanying his bride, the church, to his wedding feast. But there's a small problem here. Many Jewish commentators will point out that this parable scenario is thoroughly Jewish and that therefore the virgins are Jewish, not Christian. It's very true to say that in Jesus' time, Christianity was some decades before, from coming into being. Christianity at that time did not exist. Jesus, all of his disciples, and therefore all the characters in this parable were in name at least practicing Jews. But it should be noted, noted that several decades later, when our eyewitness author wrote his recollections and collections from other materials, that Christianity and the church had come into being. Matthew reports that 
Jesus has already referred to the church, ecclesia, in Matthew 16, Peter as the rock, and Matthew 18, reporting issues of sin to the church. In fact, the only places in the Gospels that mention the church are these places in Matthew. So more generically, the virgins represent Jesus' followers, which could be either church or synagogue. But why 10 virgins as opposed to any number of virgins in verse 1? Bearing in mind that writing was expensive, Matthew has used the number 10 here for a reason. 10 people was considered to be the minimum size a synagogue could be, called the minyan. Certain ritual Jewish prayers were only considered valid if 10 people recited them. The equivalent formula for the church meetings is where two or three are gathered together, which only occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18.20. So Matthew appears to be familiar with the distinction between the synagogue and the church. So this number more closely represents Jewish practice, as we've seen. Matthew was familiar with the church, and the virgins probably more accurately represented the synagogue rather than the church. All of the virgins went to meet the bridegroom in verse 1. They're all followers of Jesus, at least to some extent. Five of the virgins were wise. Five were foolish in verse 2. One of my favorite theologians, R.T. France, uses the terms sensible and silly. I can't find any definitive significance to the number five here. I think it's just inferring a 50-50 mix. Why at midnight in verse 6? Well, I think it's not literally midnight, as in zero-hour Zulu time, as we think of it. It might be better rendered as in the middle of the night. More likely what we would think of as three in the morning. There's no bewitching midnight hour that we need to, need to be on watch for a countdown to, unlike Harold. Generally speaking, the Jews didn't reckon time like we did. Time was more a sequence of events to them, not a ticking clock. So the bridegroom could never be late for his procession to the wedding feast, even though the virgins experienced a delay. As long as the procession occurred in the right order, the right sequence of events, the bridegroom was on time. If I can have slide eight, please. The cry rang out in verse 6. Some herald or perhaps a watchman has announced the bridegroom on his way. This could be a false alarm or an announcement that the bridegroom is about to emerge. Or the parable could be relating the event twice because the bridegroom doesn't actually get to the virgins until verse 10. If I could have slide 9, please. The virgins trim their lamps in verse 7. The trimming was the cutting off of burnt parts of the wick in order to make the lamp perform properly. The lamp required filling with oil for its fuel. They could not, therefore, as some commentators have suggested, be torches, since torches would not and could not need trimming. The lamps the virgins had could have been more ceremonial than practical. There's a sense that the virgins' lamps were their key, their passport, to enter into the wedding feast. 
in the story, the fact that half the requisite number of virgins failed to perform their part in this very important, unique event for the bridegroom may help explain why the bridegroom didn't know them. It's possible this might have been intended as a dismissal rather than the genuine non-connaissance. Most people in a village would have known most of the other people in the village, especially if they had been selected to be part of this important ceremony. It's quite possible that a 50% reduction in the number of lanterns wouldn't have affected the ability of the whole party to traverse to the bridegroom's house. Interestingly, although this is the middle of the night, the inference of the parable is that the foolish virgins were able to buy more oil. This may be because everyone in the village would have been awake because of the wedding. Shops probably didn't have formal opening hours then. A prominent preacher described running out of oil as a schoolboy error. This may be true, but bear in mind that all of these virgins were probably of present-day school age, and possibly being women, they may not have had much of an education in the culture of that day. So the wise virgins could just as easily have been thought of as schoolboys as the foolish ones. And what could the light of those lamps represent? In John 8, 12 and 9, 5, Jesus describes himself as being the light of the world. However, John is probably the only gospel to have been written after Matthew. In Matthew itself, in 5, 14, immediately after the Beatitudes, Jesus tells the crowd listening to him that you are the light of the world. So there's a sense that the light represents Jesus' people. And what could the oil represent? Many preachers and commentators try to attribute special meaning to the oil. In the Old Testament, oil was used for the anointing of kings in particular, by which means the Holy Spirit often came upon them. But there's no ceremony attached to the oil here. It's simply fuel. Here, the oil doesn't represent any spiritual gifts terribly well, because it had to be purchased. If anything, the oil could represent persistence, or, as we'll see in a moment, it could represent redemption. The entry into the wedding feast in verse 10. No description of the journey is offered. The virgins who are ready arrive immediately at the banquet, and the door is shut. It probably wasn't a very long journey, probably in the same village, probably no more than a few hundred yards at most. The wedding feast, no doubt, represents the heavenly feast that Matthew quotes Jesus describing to us in Matthew 8.11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at, at the feast with me in the kingdom of heaven. Entry into the heavenly marriage feast would be reserved for the redeemed. Would the door be shut in a real wedding feast of the day? Probably not, I think. In many cases, this would be a cause for celebration across the whole village. The wedding in Cana may well have run out of wine due to unexpected guests or gate crashes. But there would, would no doubt have been exceptions, especially for the upper classes of that day. But then, we regard Jesus as a king, which is perhaps why his wedding feast door in the story was closed. Perhaps the door, door closing in this story, illustrates Jesus' kingly nature. 
But even if the door had been closed, there would probably also have been some sort of celebration, some feasting among those to whom the door had been closed. If I could have slide 10, please. The late foolish virgins appeal for entry into the locked wedding feast in verse 11. Sir, sir, or Lord, Lord, they appeal. Lord, Lord here is not a term reserved for the divine, but it would have been the correct form of address to an important person. Verse 12, don't you think Jesus' rejection of them is a little cruel? I tell you the truth, I don't know you, Jesus says. If Jesus didn't know the foolish virgins, then it follows that he could never have known them. It's unlikely he could have forgotten them if he had have known them. The inference of the rejection of the five foolish virgins is that they, unlike the wise virgins, have not been redeemed of their sin. If I could have picture 11, please. Back to the lamps again. There's only one other place in scripture that deals with the sale of oil, and it features redemption as well. It's the story of Elisha and the prophet's widow in 2 Kings 4. Here, the unnamed widow of an unnamed prophet who used to work for Elisha, presumably part of his prophetic school, begs Elisha to know how she should pay off her debts. Debts, in those days, are synonymous with sin. Elisha asks what the widow has, and she replies, nothing but some oil. Elisha instructs the widow to acquire as many jars as she can and fill up those jars with oil. The oil, by inference miraculously, continues flowing until the last jar is filled. The widow sells the oil and redeems her debts. So in 2 Kings, the widow has oil and is able to sell the oil for redemption. In our parable, the foolish virgins have no oil, at least at the right time, and are rejected for entry into the heavenly feast. So as an application, is there any danger to us that Jesus could claim he doesn't know us when we try to gain entry to the heavenly feast? Well, it's fortunate that knowing someone is two-way. If you know Jesus, he knows you. Matthew 8, 12 goes on to say, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This hints that the foolish virgins represent people who might believe that they had a right to enter the kingdom by, say, virtue of nationality or church membership without any actual relationship with God. So I just want to spend a few minutes on describing what I don't think this passage is about. Some accounts in popular media and sometimes a little beyond deserve commenting on. Point number one, it's not a condemnation about any of the virgins falling asleep in verse five. All 10 virgins became drowsy and fell asleep. There's no distinction between the wise and the foolish here. If you mustn't fall asleep, was to have been Jesus' message here, such as, as was to follow very soon in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have introduced the distinction between the two cases. But he didn't, and we don't have it here.
point number two. The sleeping and the arousal from the same probably doesn't represent death and resurrection in verses five to seven. After the virgins woke, the foolish ones went off, presumably to buy oil in the middle of the night. They later turn up late at the door of the wedding feast. The inference is that they have been successful in purchasing oil. But would we be able to purchase oil post-resurrection? Point number three. It's not, first and foremost, about having lots of provisions. True, the foolish virgins didn't have any oil, whereas the wise virgins did. But the wise virgins had only just enough oil. Else, they could have shared it with their friends, the foolish virgins. That would have made a great share and share alike parable, eh? There's a sense in which the wise had been accurately prepared for this event. The oil, after all, is not going to be of immediate value to the wise once they have entered the wedding feast. And fourth and most important point uh, about, uh, that this, this uh, passage isn't, it's not about predicting the date and time of Jesus' second coming, verse 13. Absolutely the reverse, in fact. By definition, anyone who claims to know the date and time, such as camping, is wrong. So in conclusion, what this passage is about. As I said in the spoiler alert at the beginning of this talk, we're told this in the last verse, Matthew 25, 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the hour of the day. That is, we don't know that the day or the hour when Jesus is going to come again and take his bride, the church, into the heavenly feast. But the advice to us is keep watch which could also be translated as stay awake. In fact, a few, ver few versions of the Bible have that. It seems a little out of place here. After all, all the virgins fell asleep, and there was no condemnation of the wise ones for having done so. This idea of watchfulness derives from the Old Testament, where watchmen would be posted on the walls of a city to watch out for incomers, which could include potential armies. It was obviously beneficial if that person doing the watch could stay awake for their period of duty. Watching and staying awake were synonymous. But here, the virgins are not criticized for having fallen asleep. There's a sense here in which the watchman on the walls has become a spiritual watchman, which could include watchwomen as well, to watch out for incoming spiritual matters. So even though the scripture itself presents keeping watch as a conclusion, there's actually no definitive stay awake message in this parable. The keeping watch conclusion is more of a summary of the whole of this discourse from the beginning of chapter 24 to this point. However, we must always be ready, always prepared for that event, which will happen without warning. In other words, we need to be watchful. There are some things that can't be shared, borrowed, or gifted between Christians. My suggestion is that holiness and faith are examples. Not knowing the day or hour fits in with the Jewish idea of timekeeping, time being a sequence of events leading one into the other. So watchfulness is partly a matter of recognizing events that pass as being part of the outworking of this world towards the parousia and the arrival 
of the heavenly feast. There will be a time when it's too late to follow Jesus. In fact, knowing Jesus is vital for our admission into the heavenly feast. So what's the problem of the characters in this story? The problem is that out of the ten virgins who are expecting to be part of the nighttime wedding procession in order to gain in order to participate in the wedding feast, only half of them were accepted by the bridegroom for entry because the bridegroom says he didn't know them. This story of Jesus accepting some people and rejecting others is not unique here. In fact, this parable is the fourth of six such stories in this gospel. So could this be a problem in this day and age? We interpret this to mean that not all of the people who consider themselves as worthy of entry into the heavenly feast may be accepted into the heavenly feast because, Christ will say, he didn't know them. So what's the way out of this problem? The way out of this problem is to ensure that Jesus knows us. Fortunately, as I've said, relationships are two-way. And if we can be sure that we know Jesus, we can also be sure that he knows us. I can have slide 12, please. Fortunately, Jesus' love for us is not conditional. Oh, I was thinking slide 12 was a picture of Holman Hunt. I'm getting negative nods from the back, so maybe we won't get Holman Hunt. Some classic scriptures reassure us that Jesus' love for us is not conditional. For example, Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Do you notice that we are now in control of opening the door? What should we do if we feel we don't know Jesus or don't know Jesus enough? Perhaps obvious choices might include, include things such as prayer and Bible study. But if one is feeling distant from God, it may be difficult to immediately engage in such things. Slide number 13, if it's available. No, I'm getting negatives, so <laughs> we'll have to do without the slides. They're not essential. Um, Vatican News recently reported that the Pope said in one of his recent gospel reflections, yes, I, I follow what other parts of Christendom and what other religions have to say. He said, to whom is praise helpful? To us, not to God. By giving praise, we are saved. I thought, huh? That's a bit of a strange theology. But thinking about it, providing we can separate praise from worship, and there is a difference, we can praise anyone, for example, including God, but we should only worship God. Praise of God can be easy. It catches quickly. True praise of God inevitably leads into worship, I would suggest. So Francis may have had a point. Praise of God could easily lead to salvation. So we finally get to the end of the end. I would have a Tom and Jerry the end uh, banner for you, but uh, it's not to be. The end, the title of this message, and the end of this diverse sermon series 
on the kingdom of heaven. It's been great fun getting here. If you feel you'd like to know Jesus a little better, then I'm sure our prayer ministry people would be very willing to help. We're going to finish now with a song stroke hymn, which is going to be on the screens, I hope, if it's working, which is uh, How Lovely on the Mountains, the chorus line of Our God Reigns. Amen.